Tomorrow, though, is a very significant anniversary. But for most people in the Western world, it will come and go without much thought. February 11th, 2019, will be the 40th anniversary of the Islamic Revolution in Iran. Believe it or not, Iran used to be a close ally of the United States. But in 1979, hardline Islamists overthrew the Shah. And life in Iran has never been the same. Today, Ali Khamenei is a supreme leader of Iran, and he has ruled with an iron fist for 30 years, but he is 79 years old with no clear successor. So no one knows what's going to happen after he dies, especially in light of the recent protests stirred up by the young people of Iran who are tired of life under the crushing regime. But in the history of that region, if anything we've learned, it's that we know there's going to be violence. While Western civilization was enjoying the Dark Ages, Eastern civilization was flourishing. The Khwarezmian dynasty ruled the lands of modern-day Iran and beyond for hundreds of years, and it was unrivaled in its vastness and power for a long time. And so you might be asking yourself, why have I never heard of the Khwarezmians? Well, have you ever heard the phrase, don't shoot the messenger? The Khwarezmians would have done well to take that advice, especially if the messenger is from Genghis Khan. In the 13th century, Genghis Khan was busy uniting the Mongolian tribes of Northeast Asia, and by the time of his death, his empire would be the greatest in the world. Genghis Khan, of course, was developing a well-deserved reputation for brutality, and so history books largely gloss over his diplomatic skills. And Genghis Khan pushed his empire all the way to the eastern border of the Khwarezmian Empire which at that time was ruled by Shah Muhammad II. And since the Shah had a formidable army, Genghis desired peace. So as a sign of goodwill, he sent a convoy of 450 merchants into Khwarezmania to establish economic and diplomatic ties with the Muslims. But on the way, they were detained in the Khwarezmanian city of Otrar by a governor named Anakuk, who accused them of being spies. Upon getting word of his envoy's arrest, Genghis Khan again tried to solve the problem diplomatically. He sent a team of three ambassadors directly to Shah Muhammad II to petition for their release. They included two Mongols and their Muslim interpreter. But in a classic case of shooting the messenger, the Shah humiliated the two Mongols by shaving their heads. And they were the ones who got off easy. The Shah cut off the head of the interpreter and he ordered the massacre of the 450 merchants who had been detained in the city of Otrar. But Genghis Khan took it all in stride, right? Well, if you believe that, then you don't know Genghis Khan. He assembled an army of 100,000 men to teach the Shah a lesson. One by one, his army laid siege to the Khwarezmian cities, including Otrar. They captured Inalkuk and poured molten silver into his eyes and down his throat, and he died. In other cities, the Mongols would offer generous terms of surrender to the Muslims, only to renege on their promises and slaughter everyone. Most cities were razed to the ground, and the siege of Nishapur, a son-in-law of Genghis Khan, was killed. And this enraged his widow, who oversaw the massacre of the entire city. But killing all the people wasn't enough. She ordered all the dogs and cats to be killed as well. Every living thing in Nishapur was put to the sword. The Shah knew that his goose was cooked, so he exiled himself to the remote island 
in the Caspian Sea where he died shortly thereafter, but that wasn't good enough for the Mongols. They diverted a river to wipe off the map the city of his birth. When it was all said and done, the entire Khwarezmian dynasty was obliterated. Of the four million subjects of the Muslim kingdom, one million of them were killed in the genocide. And the world would not see death on that scale until World War I. And that's why you've never heard of the Khwarezmian Empire. By the time Genghis Khan was done, there was nothing left. Maybe Shah Muhammad II should have thought twice about shooting the messenger. A little bit of hospitality would have gone a long way. But the Shah's foolishness got his people killed. If only he had learned from the example in history found in 1 Samuel chapter 25. So I'm going to encourage you to turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 25, where we're going to see a similar story of that. Or you can find it on your electronic device if you would like. Of course, as always, there's a Bible underneath the pew in front of you. If you'd like to use that, just turn to page 247, and you'll find 1 Samuel 25 on page 247. There's, of course, as always, notes in your bulletin if you'd like to follow along. If you've been with us, you know this is the sixth episode of our current series of messages entitled Antihero, the Chronicles of David. It's getting more and more difficult these days to tell the good guys from the bad guys. And as a result, we've seen the rise of the anti-hero genre in modern fiction, where someone plays the role of the hero, but they're not very heroic in their actions. But the anti-hero is by no means a modern concept. The Old Testament is filled with anti-heroes, whom God used powerfully in spite of themselves, and David is chief among them. He was a great hero, but the fact remains that his life was stained with scandal and soaked in blood. But he won God's heart for the things that he he did correctly. And so we're going to look at the Chronicles of David. Now, maybe you've missed some of the five messages, but never fear. The audio of each of the past five messages is on our website, ihefc.org. It's brand new. Uh, You should check it out, but you can listen to them at your leisure. But for now, allow me a brief moment to get everyone caught up. We've learned that David, he was a fierce warrior, and he quickly rose to the ranks of the Israelite army. And he won the admiration of the common man. And as a result, everyone assumed that he was the heir apparent to the throne. But David's growing popularity made the current king nervous, whose name was Saul. And King Saul began to see David as a rival, not just the heir apparent. And so he ordered his men to kill David. But David was tipped off by Saul's son, Jonathan, whom he was good friends with. And David escaped into the wilderness. And through this dark time in the wilderness, as we saw last week, we've seen God begin to transform David from an anti-hero to more of a genuine hero. God needs a leader. He doesn't need another Genghis Khan. And rather than solving every problem with violence, David is learning how to save lives. He's learning restraint and prudence and selflessness. But as we'll see in today's passage, David will always be plagued with his old impetuous tendencies toward anger and violence. His inclination will always be to shoot the messenger first and ask questions later. And so he's going to need help keeping those old habits in check. So in our passage today, we'll see God working to pair him with someone who can moderate his impulsiveness with wisdom and discretion. David is a warrior, and he desperately needs a peacemaker in his life. So let's see how God does it. Second, or 1 Samuel Chapter 25, 
And I'm going to kind of skip through some of this chapter to shorten it a little bit, take out some of the details. So just follow along with me and be bear with me as we kind of have a lengthy piece to read today. First Samuel 25, starting in verse 2. It says, There was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel, and the man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, And the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men. And David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name, and thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm, and they missed nothing all the time that we were with them in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son David. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to men whom come from I do not know where? So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to his men, every man strap on his sword and every man of them strapped on his sword. And David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David while 200 remained in the baggage. But one of the men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Now skip down to verse 18. Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five seas of parched grain and a hundred clusters of raisin and 200 cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, Go on before me. Behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under the cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down toward her, and she met them. Now David had said, Surely in vain have I guarded all this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he has returned me evil for good. God's do so to the enemies of David, and more also if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. And she fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I am your servant. I do not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now, my Lord... As the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then, let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. Now skip down to verse 32. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For as sure as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly by morning there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him, and he said to her, Go up 
in peace to your house. See, I've obeyed your voice. I have granted your petition. And Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the morning light. In the morning, when the wine had gone, gone out from Nabal, his wife told him these things. And his heart died within him, and he became a stone, as a stone. And about ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord, who has avenged the insult I have received at the hand of Nabal, and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. Then David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. So, every anti-hero we know has a love interest, it's inevitable, and it's clear from this passage that God's plan from the very beginning is for Abigail and David to get together and be married. As we said, David needs a peacemaker to moderate his warrior tendencies if he has become the leader that God wants for his people and not just another Genghis Khan. So how does God get from point A to point B? At the beginning of this chapter, David and Abigail don't even know each other. So how is God going to get them married in the end? There are a lot of obstacles between point A and point B that God is going to have to overcome. And the first obvious obstacle is that Abigail is already married to another man. Right from the beginning, Abigail is contrasted with her husband, Nabal. Abigail is beautiful and discerning. She's a total package. But Nabal is harsh and wicked and impulsive. So how did these two get together in the first place? Well, Nabal is rich. And in those days, wealthy men could buy about any bride that they wanted. So Abigail probably had no choice but to marry Nabal against her wishes. It was out of her control. In first century Rome, there lived a Stoic philosopher named Epictetus. But Epictetus wasn't the typical Roman philosopher. He rejected the erudite theoretical philosophies of his contemporaries in search of a practical philosophy that worked in everyday life. You see, Epictetus had been dealt a tough hand in life. He was born a slave, and there was no life more miserable than a Roman slave. They had no rights and no recourse from the abuse they endured from their masters. When Epictetus' master broke his leg in a fit of anger, there was nothing Epictetus could do about it, and he was crippled. Epictetus had very little control of his life. So how can one be happy with a fate he did not choose? Well, Epictetus theorized that true happiness is learning to differentiate between what we can control and what we cannot control. Yes, we should try to influence fate, he believed, but we can't control it. So we should radically accept our bad circumstances as opportunities to act virtuously. We may not be able to choose our situation, but we can choose how we respond, how we feel, how we react. This is what Epictetus believed in short order. He said, don't demand that things happen as you wish, but wish that they happen as they do happen, and you will do well. Wow, sounds like Epictetus stumbled onto some biblical truth, doesn't it? Look at what the Apostle Paul said. Philippians chapter 4, verse 11, I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. In other words, Paul says, don't demand that things happen as you wish, but wish that they happen as they do, 
and then see every circumstance as an opportunity to act virtuously. Look what Paul said in Romans 5, 3 through 4. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And it's interesting that the lifetimes of Paul and Epictetus overlap one another in the Roman Empire. So it's not surprising that Stoic philosophy and New Testament truth overlap as well. But Abigail was practicing Stoicism and New Testament truth before it was cool. She's not wallowing here in the Old Testament in self-pity because she had been put in a bad situation against her will. She's not cursing the fates for the fool of a husband she's been stuck with. She simply accepts the fact that she can't control his stupid actions and she takes responsibility for her own. She will not be crushed by her difficult situation. She will use it as an opportunity to act virtuously. Abigail will be a good person with or without Nabal. Abigail will be strong, fearless, and resourceful. She will lay down her life for her people even if Nabal won't. A while back I came across the amazing story of Vice Admiral James Stockdale. If you were into political history, then you know that James Stockdale was Ross Perot's running mate back in 1992. But the rigors of a presidential campaign were nothing compared to what Stockdale had to endure during Vietnam. James Stockdale was a naval aviator whose plane was shot down by the Viet Cong, and he managed to eject eject in time, and as he floated down in his parachute behind enemy lines, he prepared his mind for the unimaginable horrors that lay ahead for him. And he did this by meditating on the teaching of Epictetus. Stockdale made the determination to see this terrible twist of fate as an opportunity to put Epictetus' philosophy to the test. He landed in a small village where he was immediately seized upon by some Vietnamese young men who almost beat him to death. Permanently crippled by the beating, he would go on to spend the next seven and a half years in the infamous Hanoi Hilton, prisoner of war camp, where he would undergo torture and misery that we can only imagine. His joints would be pulled out of socket, his bones would be crushed. But in his mind, Stockdale separated everything into two categories. The circumstances that were within his power and the circumstances that were outside of his power. He would bravely face with radical acceptance all those terrible things that were completely outside of his control that were happening to him, but he would vigilantly cherish the few things that were still within his power. It was still within his power to set an example for the other prisoners. It was still within his power to lead them. He could still control the emotions he displayed. He could still hold tenaciously to his sense of right and wrong. And he could still show great compassion and kindness. And his leadership was so effective in the prison camp that his captors were forced to banish him to solitary confinement away from the other prisoners for four of those seven and a half years. Can you imagine? But Stockdale wouldn't be broken. His mind was too strong. James Stockdale would survive the war, and upon his return home, he was awarded the Medal of Honor. Years later, he would be interviewed about his experience at the Hanoi Hilton. And when asked by author Jim Collins how he had survived all those years, he said this, I never lost faith in the end of the story. I never doubted not only that I would get out, but also that I would prevail in the end and turn the experience into the defining event of my life, which, in retrospect, I would not trade. James Stockdale stayed positive. But, surprisingly, when asked what type of person 
didn't survive, Stockdale said it was the blind optimists. He said they always dreamed about going home, but they they never confronted the terrible reality of their situation with honesty. And when their fantasy failed to come true time and time again, they died of a broken heart. Collins labeled this seeming contradiction the Stockdale paradox. And here's how he summarized it. He said, you must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end, which you can never afford to lose, with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever that might be. Abigail is illustrating the Stockdale paradox for us. She acknowledges the brutal facts. She openly admits that her husband is a total fool, But that doesn't mean she's a helpless victim. She doesn't wallow in her circumstances. She's positive, but she's not some chump. She doesn't fantasize about how her circumstances could be different. If she indulged in that kind of thinking, then she would die of a broken heart. She knows she can't control any of that, but she can control her actions and her attitudes and her emotions, and she will choose to act virtuously in those Circumstances she cannot control. So here's the point. God is sovereign, but at the same time, we are free. God does as he pleases, but he requires us to help him. We have no control over, the most, over most of the circumstances in our lives, but we control everything we do. We are brute realists, but we are always positive. It's a paradox. But the Apostle Paul confirmed this dual philosophy of life. Epictetus discovered this truth on his own. Stockdale tested it in the most extreme environment, and Abigail lived it out in real life. We see this dual philosophy of life played out in this passage this morning, and it rings true in our lives as well. So God has deemed that something needs to happen. David and Abigail need to get together for the good of God's people. That's what he deems that needs to happen. But to get from point A, where they don't even know each other, to point B, where they're married, some obstacles will need to be overcome in between. And what Abigail and David both realize is that some of these obstacles are within their power to overcome, and some are not. Some of these obstacles must be moved by them, and others can only be moved by God. Both things need to happen, this dual philosophy. And that's our main point from this morning's passage. You can write it in your bulletin if you'd like. The main point is every circumstance falls into one of two categories. Those things that God preordains and those things that we can change. Every circumstance that we face, every situation in our lives falls into one of these two categories. Those things God preordains, those things that God controls, those things that we can't do anything about, and then those things that we can change. Epictetus says happiness comes in knowing the difference. Stockdale proved it, Abigail lived it, and the Apostle Paul confirmed it. The author of the Proverbs talks about this seamless mixture of God's providential hand in the world and our own responsibility for our lives. He says in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 through 6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. The things that God preordains. 
But then he says, in all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight, the things that we can control. Jesus talked about differentiating between those things we can control and those things that we cannot. Matthew 6, chapter, uh, verse 34, he says, Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, those things we can't control anything about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. But we can control what we do today, right? So let's see how this dual reality plays out in our story this morning as we review it. David and his men are making a living by protecting people in the wilderness that they're in. They are basically muscle for hire. He has protected Nabal's shepherds, and he's expecting to get paid for it. So he sends his men to Nabal in order to collect. Now, I'm not sure if this is the most ethical way to make money, uh, but you've got to survive somehow. And it's clear that Nabal has plenty to spare, and it would be well within his means to feed David's men. But instead, he decides to shoot the messengers, metaphorically speaking. He insults David, David's men and sends them away in disgrace. And so David turns into Genghis Khan. He's ready to commit genocide over this. He's so insulted. He admits that he is on his way to kill every single person in Nabal's household. So David is falling back into his old anti-hero warrior tendencies. You have a problem? Just kill it. That's not what God wants. Abigail gets word of what's happening, and she is determined to save her people. So she gathers up all the food and supplies that David needs, and she rides out to meet David on the way, and she hopes that David won't shoot the messenger himself. She kneels before him and tactfully reminds David that what he is doing is wrong, but she does it in a way that he can save face. She appeals to the goodness in David. So do you want to influence people? Do you want to convince people to take a different direction? Do you really want to make a difference in people's lives? Don't shame them. Don't insult them. Don't try to strong arm them. If they are clearly in the wrong, then give them the opportunity to change their mind with dignity. Speak to them tactfully. Appeal to their better angels. Make them the hero of the story. And talk to them at the right time. It takes wisdom. Abigail didn't interrupt Nabal's party to tell her what she had done. Perhaps he was a mean drunk. Instead, she waited until he was sober. So David is moved by her wisdom and discernment. He recognizes that God is using Abigail to bring him back to his senses. And he starts to realize that he needs someone like this in his life and by his side. You see, God's providence and man's responsibility are working together seamlessly in this story. God is using Abigail's good sense to bring about his will. But at the same time, God's hand is directly involved in events that only he can do. Only God can get Abigail out of this marriage. She couldn't divorce him in that society. That just didn't happen. But as long as Abigail is married to this good-for-nothing fool, then God's plan cannot be fulfilled, right? So God steps in and directly strikes Nabal dead. David recognizes this as a divine act of God. So he takes advantage of this opportunity and whisks away Abigail to be his wife. And not only does he enjoy the benefits of her wisdom, but for the first time in her life, she is excited about her marriage. It's a happy ending for everyone, except for Nabal, that is. 
So we see in this passage those things that we can control and those things that we cannot control, that only God can control. There are the things that God is doing directly to accomplish his will by his hand and the things that people are doing to accomplish his will. But I'm going to break it down even further than these two things. In the things that we can control, God is working in both our obedience and our disobedience. God is working through Abigail's wisdom and prudence, but he's also working through Nabal's foolishness and David's rashness and anger. And you need all three dimensions to get from point A to point B in this story. If God doesn't directly intervene and strike Nabal dead, then his plan fails. David and Abigail can't get married, and David doesn't become the kind of leader that his people need him to be. But the people also have to do their part. People have to act virtuously. If Abigail doesn't step in, then she would have been destroyed along with the rest of Nabal's household. If she hadn't acted with discretion and wisdom, then David may not have wanted to marry her in the first place. But even beyond that, God worked through these people's sins. If Nabal had not shot the messengers, so to speak, then Abigail would have never gone out to meet David. If David hadn't lost his cool, then Abigail would have nothing to talk him out of. And they would have never gotten together. You see, God is so gracious. God's will can be fulfilled in our lives even when we are imperfect. So it takes all three dimensions to get from point A to point B. God working directly through his own hand, doing the things only he can do. And God working indirectly through man's obedience and disobedience. So our application this morning is this, and it's in your bulletin if you'd like to write it down. The application is to see your life in 3D. And those three Ds are this. God works through one, divine intervention. God works through two, your dealings, the virtuous things that you do in life. And God works through three, even your deficiencies. God works through divine intervention, those things that he does by his hand that only he can do and you have no control over. He works through your dealings. He works through when you see maybe God's will happening and you do the right thing and you act virtuously to make that happen. But God is so good that he even works through your deficiencies to get from point A to point B to accomplish his will. Does that application seem suspect to you? Does it seem too unbelievable that God can even use our deficiencies, our sin, for our own good? Does it seem too good to be true that God would have contingencies in his plan for our life for our folly as he works out his will? Well, don't shoot the messenger because I want you to look at what the Apostle Paul writes about all three dimensions working in his life to accomplish God's will. Talks about this in Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord at my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. 
The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So, let's look at this. Jesus had specifically told Paul that it was God's will for his life to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. In other words, preach it to the whole world outside of Jerusalem. We see this in Acts 22, 21. Jesus said to Paul, go, for I send you far away to the Gentiles. So, this was something. So, so point A to point B. Point B was Paul preaching the gospel to all the Gentiles. And this was something Paul could do. So in obedience, he starts preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. But this got him thrown in prison, which was a bad circumstance that was out of his control. God made that happen. But rather than wallow in self-pity, he saw it as an opportunity to act virtuously. It was an opportunity to be an example to his captors. So we see God working out his will uh, in the things Paul can control, and we see God working out his will in the things that Paul cannot control. But we also see God working through man's disobedience and folly. People were preaching the gospel just to spite Paul while he was in prison. Their motives were selfish, but Paul didn't care because God was using it to accomplish his plan even further. God's using divine intervention. He's using Paul's good dealings. And he's using other people's deficiencies to work out his plan for Paul's life, which was to spread the gospel to the Gentiles. This is amazing. Epictetus recognized this truth, even though he didn't know Christ. James Stockdale believed it in the most extreme circumstances. God did it in David's life. God did it in Abigail's life. And God is doing it in your life as well. You see, we have to start seeing God's work in our lives in 3D. We have to recognize the three dimensions. It starts in our dealings. God's will for your life is going to require your obedience. Remember what we said last week? God will give you the chance to do his will, but you've got to dance. You've got to move. You've got to do it. You are at point A right now. God wants you at point B, whatever that may be for your life, so you've got to move. You need to use your wisdom to make good decisions. But at the same time, you have to rely upon God to do only what he can do. There are some obstacles between point A and point B that only God can remove. See, for instance, you can't make your flourish, your, your ministry flourish on your power alone. You just can't. God has to remove some obstacles. Another example, your kids, and how they turn out, It's not completely dependent upon you, is it? God has to do a working. God has a divine hand in all of that. You can't control all the outcomes in your life. But your actions are entirely within your control. Radically accept the things outside your power, but act virtuously in the things within your power. Be brutally honest about your circumstances. But don't lose heart. As far as it depends on you, do all that you can to be successful and to get to point B. 
And when you see God divinely intervening in your life, take advantage. But when you don't take advantage, when you mess it up, when your deficiencies shine through, don't despair. God has taken into account your sporadic foolishness, and he can work with it. Don't push your luck, of course, but God's plan takes our sinfulness into consideration. Minimize your failures. Learn from your mistakes, but don't wallow in them. And all three of these aspects work seamlessly to fulfill God's will for your life. God uses all of them to get us from point A to point B. So think about what God is specifically doing in your life. Do you think he wants you to, I don't know, change careers? Then be obedient in your dealings. Get new skills. Do what you can. Don't wait for God to work some miracle. Do something. Then look for the doors that only God himself can open. Look for ways God is directly intervening to make his will happen. And if you mess it up, keep moving. God's plan's not thwarted yet. He's taken into account your sinfulness. Does God want you to start a new ministry? Then get started. Do the best you can. Make good plans and follow through. It's not magic. But remember, the outcome belongs to God. God's the one who changes hearts. And don't think you've screwed up too much to be used by God and to not to be used by God. He he might just use those mess-ups in a way that you can never imagine. Maybe you think it's God's will for you to get married and have children. Well, don't just sit back and wait for the fireworks. Become the best version of yourself. But don't sweat it too much because things won't happen until God starts to move anyway. God's really in a hurry, is he? And sure, you have flaws. We all do. So work to minimize your deficiencies and don't lose hope. You can apply these three dimensions to any work of God in your life. God is strong enough to accomplish his will. He's humble enough to let us participate. And he's good enough to overcome our faults. And next week we'll see God relying on all these things to accomplish God's will in the biggest arena of his life. Saul, the king, will die in battle and it will finally be David's time. But one man will stand in his way. His name is Ishbosheth, the son of Saul. But unlike Ishbosheth's brother Jonathan, he won't give up his birthright without a fight. So I'm going to encourage you to read 2 Samuel chapter 2 through 5 this week. Chapters 2 through 5, 2 Samuel. And you bring a friend next Sunday and get ready for the ascension of our beloved anti-hero. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for these folks who have made it here today on this snowy day. And, and Lord, we pray for all of those who, who weren't uh, able to make it today that you would bless them and that they could be encouraged where they are and that you would keep them safe. And um, we pray just, just this, the very best for all in our church family. And God, as we as a church look to get from point A to point B in our lives, and it is as a church as a whole, I pray, Lord, you'd help us to work diligently, to do the best we can to be successful. But, Lord, we'd also trust you to do those things and remove those obstacles that only you can do. We can be brutally honest about the situations in our lives, but we don't lose hope.
It's an opportunity to act virtuously. And God, thank you so much that even in our deficiencies, you've taken into consideration when you've laid out your plan for our lives. And we don't have to lose heart when we mess things up. There's contingencies you've built into the plan. You're so good, God. So I pray, Lord, that we would do what we can. We would trust you to do what only you can do. And we would minimize our deficiencies and not lose hope. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.